You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 414 of the podcast. Today is Monday June 20th, 2022, and today we are going to talk about why conservative homeschooled kids like mine should read non-Christian literature. But before we get into that, I would like to draw your attention to an article from Greg Wilson from June 11th. 2022, so just nine days ago, at thedailywire.com, guns must not be used for self-defense, Canada's Trudeau insists. Guns are for hunting and target practice, but never for self-defense, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said this week, continuing his crusade against firearms. Go figure. And I won't read the whole article for you, I will just share this quote, this direct quote from him, you can't use a gun for self-protection in Canada. It's not a right that you have. So here we have Trudeau, prime minister of Canada, who has been very concerned about climate change, very concerned about COVID, locked Canada down from coast to coast, was trying to push a vaccine mandate for truck drivers. And then truck drivers got upset because they, a great many of them didn't want to get the COVID vaccine. Didn't feel like they needed it, especially if they're driving across country by themselves for the most part. They don't want it. And it's wrong, as they would argue. It's immoral to try and force them to get it against their will, to threaten their livelihood, threaten their ability to provide for their families unless they get that vaccine. So the truck drivers drove to Ottawa, the capital city of Canada, and they proceeded to shut down the city. And some other similar protests shut down crossings for the U.S.-Canada border. A lot of farmers and ranchers in Canada joined in. A lot of just regular folks showed up to support the truck drivers. And Trudeau's response was to treat all of the above like terrorists and to crack down on them. And I'll just say, speaking for myself personally, all the footage that I saw of police action against the protesters showed the police acting very Badly, on orders, of course, and the protesters being oppressed. That, that is what oppression looks like. That, that is actual oppression. When you shut down an entire country, you threaten the livelihoods and therefore the very lives of your people. And then when they protest, you get them beat up by law enforcement in your capital city. And then you refuse to even meet with them, refuse to even talk with them directly because, again, in his own words, 
You only meet with protesters you agree with the politics of, like Black Lives Matter. You agree with Black Lives Matter, and so you'll meet with them to protest with them, essentially, on the world stage against the status quo. But you won't meet with truck drivers because they're beneath you, apparently. They need to just be quiet and go back to work because they need to know their place because they don't rate on your oppressive, oppressor, oppressed scale. They just don't rate. But it's a concerning thing to me, even though this is Canada, that you would have this push against the use of firearms for self-protection. Where does this come from? This idea that you can't protect yourself with a firearm. Now, he says in the extended clip, if you watch the extended clip, that Canadians very often bring this talk of having a right to self-defense with a firearm up from the U.S. So conservatives in Canada, ostensibly, get to talking with conservatives in America, in the United States, and they start thinking, man, that sounds right, that sounds really good, that we would have a right to keep and bear arms, to protect ourselves, to protect our country, if needs be. And so then they start talking that way up in Canada. And Trudeau says, oh, no, no, it's not in our constitution. You have no right. You have no right to use a firearm for self-defense. Essentially, he says, if you have a firearm and you use it for hunting and sport shooting, that's fine. But you don't have any right to use the firearm to defend yourself if somebody's attacking you. And to my mind, that's just crazy town. That is a classic line of totalitarians throughout the 20th century. That is a line that is delivered before you take everybody's guns and then proceed to dispose of whichever of them you find undesirable, whichever of them you decide are on the wrong side of history. You are going to erase them from history by killing them. And then they can't defend themselves because, for one, you told them, They're not allowed. And then they believed you stupidly. And for another thing, you took away their guns and you took away their ability to get firearms or to get ammunition. And the flip side of the coin here for what Trudeau is saying with regards to certain arguments about, uh, let's call them inalienable rights, right? That's a a term we can use, inalienable rights, (laughs) This talk of inalienable rights trickles up to Canada from the United States, but so also tyranny can trickle down from Canada, and we should be very concerned about the way that our neighbors across the border are treated by Trudeau and how many Democrats here in the U.S. think exactly the same as Trudeau. Trudeau is not an anomaly. He is a classic leftist, lefty, big government, totalitarian type who doesn't believe you should be able to defend yourself with a firearm. And what follows historically, this is not conjecture, it's not hyperbole, this is not fiction, this is not George Orwell's 1984, this is not Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, this is not fantasy land, this is history. Pick up a history book. What follows efforts to remove your ability to get a firearm to protect yourself is invariably that the government gets bigger and bigger and bigger and is trying to protect you 
even from life itself in an asthmatic way. And that is not good. It is not good to try and protect people from life itself. You can't go around curing diseases by killing the patients. And yet that's exactly what totalitarian leftist statist governments throughout the 20th century did increasingly as they divorced their thinking and their governance and their government philosophy from any subjection to God's government being supreme or any idea of eventually giving an account to God, being called to account by God for their actions. As that has happened through the 20th century, millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people have been murdered by their own governments. So beware of this. Watch out for it. It is something that the Democrats want here as well. If they thought they could get away with it, if they think they can get away with it, they will continue pushing for it. We have to say simply no, because it is a matter of life and death. Whether you're told you have a right to defend yourself or not is a secondary question when we're talking about human authorities. If you are too addicted to human authorities over you, to where you regard them as God, you will walk right off of a cliff from a philosophical standpoint and from a practical standpoint. And that just is not necessary. Before God, read your Bible, study your Bible. That is not necessary before God that we should walk off a cliff with some kind of a blind, naive obedience to human authorities and a disregard of the whole counsel of God. God has instituted government to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil, according to Paul in Romans 13. He does not bear the sword for nothing. The governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. But that is to say, the sword is, in our day, the firearm. And that is to say as well, that this idea of being able to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil is not unique to civil government. That is also the role of fathers, for instance. As a father myself, we just celebrated Father's Day yesterday. I have eight children, and if something comes along trying to attack one of my children, I have firearms to put that threat to their lives down. Some crazy neighborhood dog gets out and comes after one of my kids, and that dog is going hasta la bye-bye. That dog is going away forever. That is a quick trip to a shallow grave (laughs) for the neighborhood dog if it attacks one of my kids. Well, so also, if some crazy drug-infused criminal comes trying to abduct one of my kids, if I were to listen to Justin Trudeau, well, I'm just supposed to yell at the guy or chase after him or throw a chair at him or something, you know, blow a whistle. Cause what's that going to do? You know, look at the big cities where you have violent, heinous, violent crime being perpetrated against innocent people by let's say homeless people, for instance, or just random crazies, druggies, evil people in broad daylight, in full view of the public, And you have their victims crying out for help and witnesses, onlookers, taking video 
and filming the whole thing and just saying, hey, isn't this weird? And doing nothing, doing nothing whatsoever. So what? We're going to have a society like that and you blow a whistle and what happens exactly? And oh, by the way, you want to defund the police. And so what happens, right? The crazy left doesn't want to get away from you using a firearm to defend yourself just so they can protect you even better and harder from their own resources. They want to deprive you of the ability to defend yourself because they want to redistribute everything that you have amongst themselves. They are covetous, envious, and malicious. And they're thinking, we take away the firearms from these conservative types who might try and stop us if we get really radically totalitarian and Marxist, and then we go for it. But if we are reading our history, if we are reading our Bibles, we don't have to go along with that. We just don't. In fact, I would say we have a responsibility to not to. Whatever Justin Trudeau would say, just because he's saying it, that don't make it true. That don't make it right. Moving on, though. The main topic of this episode has to do with a screenshot of a comment my wife Lauren recently showed me made by another homeschooling mother on one of the message boards or groups Lauren's a part of online for homeschooling moms, in particular homeschooling families in particular, about whether our kids should read classic literature by the likes of Jane Austen and William Shakespeare and many, many others, if that literature may contain objectionable content. So there's your big question, right? And for those who are less conservative, less stodgy about such things, the idea that we would forego William Shakespeare and Jane Austen because they may not have been Christians or they may not have had good doctrine. They might have been heretics. They might have been pagans. Or they might have been heterodox at best. Or their books, their stories may contain some objectionable material, some objectionable ideas. Maybe there are some characters in their stories who do some things and say some things that are not good that we don't want our kids to emulate. You might look at this question, though. You might think to yourself, well, that's kind of silly, right? Like these conservative Christians, what is their problem? Speaking of asthmatic, these conservative Christians are so asthmatic, yada, 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 yada. Well, hold on, right? Because we are <laughs> conservative Christians. And I have some thoughts on this. Uh, for one, I'll put it to you this way. We recently visited this big bookstore in Boulder, Colorado, and we came home with something by Freud, something by Nietzsche, for my oldest son, for our, our oldest son. I picked out the books, but those are for our oldest son. Something by Freud, something by Nietzsche, also Machiavelli. You don't get much more of the be wise as serpents source material than Freud and Nietzsche and Machiavelli in our day. Talk about snakes. Yeah, talk about snakes. Machiavelli is 
as serpentine as they get. He is a snake of snakes, teaching other snakes to be more snaky. But we came home from the bookstore with those things because my son asked after reading Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman, a great book, by the way. It should be required reading for all Christians living in the West today. My son was asking, hey, do we have anything by some of these guys? I don't know anything about them otherwise. And I said, well, I'll work on that. We don't have anything by them, but I'll work on that. And so now we have some books by them. And he's reading them and going to read them because he should be familiar. He should be conversant with their ideas. But is that inconsistent? Some, like Israel Wayne, for instance, since he was the impetus behind this conservative homeschooling mother, Lauren showed me the screenshot of the comment by, some like Israel Wayne question whether we're being inconsistent as homeschooling parents if we keep our kids home from the public schools because we don't, th- we, we don't want them being taught by godless folks in the public schools things that are very contrary, diametrically opposed to our Christian faith, and yet we let our kids read great works of literature written by godless folks, or so the claim goes. Now, I will note here, there are a great many works which are considered great literature, which were written by men and women who were either not Christians at all, or they did not hold the sound doctrine if they did claim a kind of Christianity. So that is the question. If we would not send our kids off to be taught by the public schools, what makes the reading of great literature by those types of authors any different or better? What makes that better or different significantly, sufficiently, compared with sending our kids off to the public schools? Well, for one thing, to answer the question, not just to ask the question, but to answer the question, where there is no difference, concerned parents are certainly free to decide to opt out of reading certain books with their kids that they do not feel equipped to work through with their kids. I would refer you to what the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament when he says that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. If reading a given work either at all or at least at a certain point in that kid's development would not be beneficial as you, homeschooling mom and dad, see it, don't read it. That's fine. You're you're free to not read that book. And you're free to not let them read it because you know your child. That's That's actually the reason why we homeschool our kids is because we know our children and the public schools play hot potato with them and toss them back and forth. And when our kids get dropped because, oh, I thought you had him. Oh, I thought you had him. That's, that just doesn't fly, right? That's the whole problem with statism. When it's everybody's problem, it's nobody's problem. But as a parent, you have a responsibility to know your child and to be considering where they're at and to be considering what they're equipped for and to be equipping them not to raise them in a bubble where they're naive and they know nothing about anything. No, naivety is not the same thing as innocence. And innocence is not the same thing as naivety. 
And yet, on the other hand, I'm not handing my eight-year-old daughter the works of Machiavelli and Freud and Nietzsche. I'm handing my almost 15-year-old son, who is very well-read and who is able to ask insightful questions and is able to push back if he doesn't think that that is true or this is right or this is quite correct. But it is important to ask the question of what constitutes a benefit. When the Apostle Paul says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, we have to ask the question of what constitutes a benefit. And in order to train our children well, we have to be thinking about what will be beneficial, not just right now, but what will be beneficial to them in two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, what will be beneficial to them. We don't want to put them on the wrong path, either in uncritically embracing certain ideas, certain attitudes, certain strains of thought, which will be corrosive to their character, to their spiritual health, to their morals, to their thinking, or to so shelter them from anything which might challenge them that essentially they have anemic brains and anemic minds and they are not conversant at all. We don't want to make either of those two mistakes. But then the question is, what do we do instead that will constitute a benefit to our children? Now, a key difference also, too, to my mind, ought to be whether the parents concerned can teach their kids, both objectively and by example, to read actively rather than passively. This is something I am realizing all the more uh, here recently, as a whole lot of people I know are reading a book uh, together this summer. And not everyone reading the book is accustomed to reading books actively. And what do I mean by that? Reading it actively versus reading it passively. Well, passively reading a book means you're engaging the work on a superficial level without second-guessing whether or how the claims being made therein are good, <clears throat> true, praiseworthy, wise, etc. You you are just uncritically reading it and letting it seep into you and Whoever the author is of the work, you're letting them do your thinking for you and just whatever they say you believe. Now, that could be because you're naive. That could be because you're lazy. That could be because you're just not informed or you just you haven't developed that critical thinking that would be necessary to be able to engage on a deeper than superficial level. Now, active reading, by contrast is where you pay close attention to what is being claimed or alleged, and you are testing the work against an objective measure of truth, goodness, and beauty. For Christians, particularly conservative Christians, this means you're comparing the claims of the literature to what God's word says is true and good and beautiful. You're not just saying, well, because there is some sin and folly portrayed in this work, I'm not going to read it. My kids aren't going to read it. No. The question to your mind ought to be also concurrently, does the Bible 
present and portray sin and folly. And where it does, can I think rightly about sin and folly when it's portrayed in other works or, let's say, in the world around me? Like, for instance, when Justin Trudeau wants to say, you do not have a right to defend yourself with a firearm, that's sin and folly. Can I recognize that that is sin and folly because I have studied God's word and God's word has given me the standard to be able to interpret whether that is correct? Also, can I study God's word to give me an awareness of what sinful man, including sinful man in government, is capable of doing that might make me want to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It might make me want to read a little bit of Machiavelli, a little bit of Nietzsche, a little bit of Freud, to understand how these people are thinking when they say that they agree with the ideas of those men. How can I know what to do with the folks who subscribe to Machiavelli and Nietzsche and Freud if I'm totally oblivious to what those men, those authors, those thinkers passed down in the way of ideas? There is, there is, to my mind, a great measure of difference between, on the one hand, your kid going through trashy books promoting godlessness, sin, and folly in the public schools, and on the other hand, your kid going through works of great literature at home with your help. There's also a big difference between a book portraying, on the one hand, godlessness, sin, and folly, and on the other hand, a book promoting the same. There is a difference. It is not all the same. Now, we might, if we are overly asthmatic about it, we might suppose that for a book to portray means that that book is promoting. But if we think like that, we will find ourselves rejecting the Bible even because we're holier than God, even though all scriptures breathed out by God and God gave us his word for a reason, namely for us to know what is his will and his character and to be able to live well, to live eternally, but also to live in the world, even though we're not of the world, and to be prudent, to be sober and vigilant. God tells us about where we come from and what is in the heart of man and what he has done about it and what we should do in light of what he has done about it. But again, too, in the public schools, you have trashy books that are being pushed on kids, and the pressure is stacked entirely on the side of conforming, affirming, accepting the trashiness. The pressure against your kid from their teachers and from their peers in the public schools is to affirm and embrace the trashiness that they're reading. And if you don't, well, then you're a bigot and you're ignorant. And if your kid in public school, even just entertains out loud the premise that we want to please God in keeping a close watch over our life and doctrine as Christians, they will be mocked mercilessly. At a minimum, they will be ignored. And sometimes this even happens in the church, which is a tragedy. But in part, I think it happens in the church because even the church is not practiced in this and has not cultivated this, but we ought to, especially conservative Christian homeschooling families like ours. But the fact is, if your kid goes to public school and they're engaging with trashy material, they probably won't even get off the ground 
in learning how to critically engage the work. They won't be allowed to. They will be harassed and harangued and mocked and pilloried, essentially, verbally, rhetorically, socially, until they give up and they throw in the towel and they keep quiet and they put their hand down and they put their head down and don't ever do that again. At home, by contrast, your job as a Christian parent overseeing your child's education is to encourage and teach your kids to affirm what is good and to reject what is bad. That's the big idea. The big idea is not to get them through life without them ever having experienced any of what is painful, unfortunate, tragic, confusing in the world. Your role as a parent is not to protect them from life itself. Your job as a parent is not to keep them from ever knowing that there are bad things in the world or what to make of them. No, because one of the problems there is what you can have is you can have this very one-sided approach to thinking about what is good. What is good, for instance? Is it good only to refrain from actively doing evil? Or is it also good to actively do good? And is it good when you're actively doing good sometimes to confront evil, wicked men? There are sins of omission and there are sins of commission. The sins of omission are the sins where you know the good that you ought to do and you don't do it. And one of the reasons that people don't do the good that they ought to do is because they feel no sense of responsibility. They think they're only supposed to disengage and to stay out of all that if somebody else is acting the fool, even tragically, appallingly, when somebody's being violently attacked and murdered right next to them on a busy street corner. The bystander effect is very powerful pressure. It's like peer pressure, but it's among strangers. And the bigger the group of strangers gets who have all agreed together, they're going to just keep on walking, not engage, not get into all that the more certain it is that evil, wicked men will do heinous, awful, depraved things to us. All we like sheep have gone astray, and yet the good shepherd comes to drive away the wolves. And one of the things that we ought to be equipped to do is to engage with villains and to confront them. Either A, call them to repentance, or B, to bring justice, speak justice, do justice. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This idea that we don't ever confront, we don't ever get unpleasant, that when it says love in the scriptures, we could actually just substitute the word nice. Right? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. It just means to be nice to your neighbor. No, no. Loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Loving one another is more than being just nice. Someone can be very, very nice and be entirely unloving. And so also, someone can be loving and not necessarily per se the nicest person. It's important to distinguish those things, to separate them out in our minds and to be, again, studying the scripture to see whether we've been taken captive by vain and human philosophy. Have we been taken in by some wrongheaded notions that are not biblical? Like, for instance, this wrongheaded notion that 
to keep ourselves unspotted from the world, as I see it, it's a wrong-headed notion. We don't engage with any material other than the Bible. You're going to have your math textbook. You're going to have your Bible. You're going to read our favorite theologians and their commentaries. And we'll read some Christian fiction. But then also, too, we won't quite know how to discern with the Christian fiction either because all of that work will be done for us by our parents and we will never we, we will never cultivate the ability to think critically ourselves that's not so good that's not so good you can't you can't learn argumentation that way you can't learn logic or rhetoric that way you can't learn to function as a human being that way that's not good it's not wise it's not necessary, though. That's the that's the nice thing. But continuing on, uh, my position, <clears throat> in case you haven't noticed yet, my position is unequivocally: we should teach our kids how to study their Bibles alongside extra biblical works. Now, which extra biblical works, when, and why, and how? That's where the rubber meets the road, and that's where individual parents need to be making those decisions with regards to their kids knowing their kids and where their kids are at developmentally, but also not just accepting that the bar has been set so low by broader society. We're going to set the bar low and we're going to keep it low so that everybody can get under it or over it or around it or whatever they want to do. But by golly, we don't want to challenge anybody. No, 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 no. A pox on that. A pox on that. The soft bigotry of low expectations is the right term for it. No, set the bar higher. Challenge, challenge push by God's grace. That's how you grow. That's how you mature. Otherwise, you're just a perpetual adolescent. You're a perpetual infant, and that's not good. Paul, the apostle, even takes to task New Testament recipients of his letters because they're still drinking milk like infants. He says they should be able to teach others, but they're still drinking milk. They should be able to bite and chew meat but they can't because they just keep going over the elementary things again and again and again and again and again. And that's thankfully, mercifully, not what we're called to. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Complete. The man of God may be complete, not a man baby, not a perpetual adolescent, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God wants us to grow up into a full maturity. But to the end of cultivating that in our children, cultivating reasonableness and discernment, our kids need to learn the rules of logic and rhetoric, including especially the various kinds of logical fallacies and how to spot them. You can get taken in by a faulty argument very easily if you don't know that there is such a thing as a faulty argument or what to do with it or how to respond to it. We've got some great works I can recommend on this front, like for instance, The Fallacy Detective. Great work. We go through that for school with our kids. Our kids need to learn how to think critically. They have to. They have to have things to cut their teeth on. Our youngest, Andrew, five months old, he's putting everything in his mouth, which means you want to 
be careful about what you hand him because he doesn't have teeth and he can't really chew and swallow. But if we give him some little chew toy to gum on, that's all right. But he should have something besides just milk to put in his mouth because he's going to he's gonna put his fingers in his mouth, if nothing else. So maybe give him something to actually just chew on. It gives him some relief for his gums as his, t- as his teeth are trying to come in. Also, we should be encouraging our kids to study the lives of the authors themselves to see whether details from their personal lives are coming through in subtle ways in the work. It should be important to us. It should. It should be noted, as Israel Wayne is pointing out, it should be noted that if William Shakespeare or Jane Austen or someone else has written a famous work and yet their life was ungodly in their private correspondence. They reject core doctrine. And then all of a sudden, you know that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If their heart was far from God or in rebellion against sound doctrine, they rejected the authority of God's word. That will come out in the things that they say. That will come out in the type of stories that they tell. That will come out in the way that they weave the narrative and write their characters into their books. But where Israel Wayne would say, well, that's proof right there that we ought not to read them exactly, right? Exactly. See, you admitted it. That's why we shouldn't read them. I would say, no, that's why we should read them and we should teach our kids to be paying attention for those details because guess what? Your kid gets a job, unless he's just going to get a job with somebody from church who owns a company from your church, who only hires Christians, and even then, that's no guarantee of safety. Sorry, people are people. I'm a people. You're people. People are people. But unless your kid is just going to live in a bubble of your local church forever, they will at a certain point have to encounter non-Christians who think non-Christian things. And they will need to know how to interact with them because we're called to that. That's why we're still here. That's why, we, <laughs> that's why we're not just immediately taken up to heaven as soon as we believe in Jesus. God has us here for a purpose, to do good works that he's prepared for us from eternity past and to equip us for the same. I think if we take the long view, it is not either reasonable or necessary to expect our kids to go through life without ever encountering wrong-headed ways of thinking, feeling, and believing. That includes the written works of people we consider to be Christians. That includes the spoken words of people we consider to be Christians. Because not always is everything that's presented as Christian to be taken in uncritically. In fact, the scriptures attest to that as well. Paul says at a certain point, even if I or an angel come to you preaching a different gospel than what was originally delivered to you, don't believe it. But that means you have to be paying attention to whether this is, in fact, what was preached to you before, the gospel by which you are saved and are being saved. Also, too, an important note here. In the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul being familiar enough with Greek poets and philosophers that he quotes them casually. Did you know that? Paul quotes Greek poets and philosophers casually in the biblical text. Now, why does he do this? How does he do it? That's important. Is 
Paul, the apostle, telling us that everything by those Greek poets and philosophers is good, trustworthy, praiseworthy, noble, upright? No, by no means. Is he affirming all their ideas just because he quoted them? No. Is he telling us that he's familiar with their works? Uh, Yeah. Otherwise, how would he quote them? That wouldn't work. That wouldn't do to quote them without being familiar with them. That does not happen. Again, when Paul writes that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, he says he will not be made a slave to anything. So he's setting an example. He says, I will not be made a slave to anything. And what that's supposed to tell us is that we also need to be taking personal responsibility for not being a slave to anything. Now, practically speaking, on this topic specifically, that may mean we are free to not engage extra-biblical works. Yes, absolutely. But my caution would be, you should not become a slave to avoidance. You should not become a slave to avoidance in a hyperventilating, asthmatic sort of a way where you think that any engagement with unbiblical, ungodly ideas, statements, assertions, positions, stories, characters will immediately invalidate your salvation and your kid is going to go to hell. And it's as simple as that. No, you need to learn how to contend for the faith. Now, the flip side, we are free to engage extra biblical works. I'm convinced of that. It's not what comes into a man that makes him unclean. It is what comes out of a man. That is what makes him unclean, Jesus says. But we do need to take care, great care, that no one including especially authors of great literature, takes us captive by vain and human philosophy. The choice of whether or not to read and engage with great works of literature by non-Christians should pass the twin tests of, is this beneficial? Also, am I being enslaved hereby? We want the first. We want the benefit for ourselves and for our children. We don't want the latter for anyone. We do not want to be slaves to sin and to folly. So some assorted questions come to mind and then I got to run. First of all, how do we communicate? How do we engage? How do we cultivate critical thinking skills and reasonableness and the ability to confidently talk through disagreements, convey challenges? How do we cultivate all of that in our kids or in ourselves? If We are only reading the Bible. And does the Bible call us to that? Is that something we've just cooked up? Also, too, can we use the Bible and the way that it talks about sin and folly, even presenting examples of the same throughout, to teach our kids how to spot sin and folly in literature or IRL in real life? When reading a book, it's not enough to know grammar, punctuation, spelling, vocabulary, because at the end of the day, none of those things matter in the least if they don't add up to meaningful ideas and claims. So we have to acquire a fluency with apprehending ideas and claims and testing the same against scripture. That is central to the Christian life. And that, my friends, is why I believe conservative homeschooled kids should read non-Christian literature. But I got to I got to run. I got to leave it there. I am going in on my day off today to work and that means I need to find some socks and my shoes and wash my face 
and comb my hair. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.